Nears will show me how. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're reading from chapter uh, 1, verses 10 to the end of the chapter, and let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself. You've revealed the truth about yourself, that you've made your truth known so clearly and plainly that we, as creatures made in your likeness, uh, can receive it and perceive it. And we thank you uh, for declaring uh, the plan you have and the gospel itself, and as it's revealed here in this book. Uh, Grant, Lord, that this text would have the impact you desire it to have in our lives today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 10, for I am... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days." But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You may take your seats. We are in the letter to the Galatians, a letter that reveals the power of the gospel uh, to give uh, freedom to us. And last time uh, we traced out some of the ways this freedom came to expression in Paul's life. He was freed from his past. He was freed from maintaining his relationship with God by law-keeping and religion. And this morning we're going to uh, take up one more, that Paul was freed from people-pleasing. Now, Paul writes what may seem like a bolt out of the blue as he writes verse uh, 10. For I'm now... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of uh, Christ. Just why does he write this? And what is a man pleaser anyway? 
Well, Susan Newman is a uh, doctor of clinical uh, psychology, and uh, she's written a book. It's entitled The Book of No, 250 Ways to Say It and Mean It. And she says that people pleasers want everyone around them to be happy, uh, and they will do whatever is asked of them uh, to keep it that way. Uh, they worry about how people will uh, look upon them if they say no. They don't want to be seen as lazy, uncaring, or selfish. They fear they'll be disliked or cut out of the group, uh, whether it's uh, friends, families, or coworkers. In other words, they're not really free. They're not free in their relationships. They're not uh, free to honor uh, their own priorities or follow their callings, and they're not free to love people. And this is because they're seeking to be validated by other people. They're trying to get their sense of security, uh, their sense of self-confidence, uh, their worth based on the approval of other people. That's what a people pleaser is. So why does Paul write this as a question at the beginning of the letter? Well, here's why. Paul is using his story not to inspire the Galatians nor to draw attention to himself, but he's using it to refute the claims of the people who want to undermine uh, the message of the gospel and to point to God's amazing grace. Now, we need to read this letter in a mirror. And when you do that, uh, this mirror reading, you actually uh, can puzzle out what the circumstances were in the churches. Others came to the churches of Galatia after Paul had been there, and they said, Paul didn't give you the whole gospel, the complete gospel. It's good that you've started with Jesus, but if you want to stay close to Jesus, if you want to uh, advance in your uh, spiritual life with Jesus then you have to convert to Judaism. If you're a man, you need to submit to circumcision. You need to observe the Old Testament law and the oral law just the way we Christians do in Jerusalem. And then they added, Paul didn't tell you this because he's a man pleaser. He changes what he teaches to gain favor with whatever audience he's before. He wants the approval of people. And so Paul wants to refute this claim. And so he tells his story in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter to make the point that he did not get his gospel from other people. It was not the product of his own reflections, but it came to him from Jesus Christ. Paul refutes the idea that the gospel message came through his own reflections his own personal uh, experience with God and his thinking on it when he says in verse 13 that he violently opposed Christianity in the church. And we saw last time the only explanation for his conversion is that he uh, was inwardly confronted uh, uh, with a revelation and objectively with a vision. And then Paul undermines the claim that this gospel message, his gospel message, came from others. As if it came from some official source of distribution from the leaders in the church of Jerusalem. 
in verses 16 and 17, he says, I did not consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He says it was three years between his Damascus Road experience and his first journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Even in Jerusalem, uh, Paul uh, was not discipled by someone else. Uh, He was not given systematic instruction when he was there. And it's in this way, that's why he makes this assertion, I am not lying about this. Uh, uh, He he undermines the assertion uh, that those who want to say that they were trained in Jerusalem uh, at at headquarters, in other words, and Paul failed to give you the whole gospel. And then Paul shows that he went up to Jerusalem uh, to have his gospel uh, checked out with a message the other apostles had received from Christ. His meetings with uh, Peter and James and the churches of Judea uh, uh, took place in the context of people who praised God for his uh, conversion. Um, uh, He demonstrates by his life that he was transformed uh, by the gospel. He goes up uh, as a demonstration of his unity with his Jewish apostle friends and accountability. But Paul wasn't commissioned by them. He didn't get his message from them either. His message, though, was the same as the other apostles. That's what he's trying to convey here. It's not me versus them. It's not that these false teachers that have come uh, from Jerusalem to Galatia have a a different gospel, better gospel. No, Paul and and all the original disciples, the apostles, they all have the same gospel. And so this testimony eliminates claims like, that's just what Paul thinks, and here's what we think, and what we think is just as valid. Paul's message is fine, but it's incomplete. Paul's message is simply his message. It's not the official teaching of Jerusalem. And uh, this is a place where it's especially hard uh, for us in our day and time. Because what Paul claims here is that he has truth with a capital T from God. And there's much in uh, the thinking of our time that resists the idea of truth. And it's because we're committed to a a notion that's been called relativism. It's the concept that, at best, we all have only a partial glimpse of the truth. But sometimes it means there's simply no such thing as capital T, truth. Or if there is, it can't be known. And Paul is expressing his confidence that there is a God uh, who exists, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is able to communicate the truth about himself as well as his plan uh, to redeem uh, the world. Paul's very clear. He's not suggesting uh, that his opinion is the truth. No, he's claiming that he received the truth directly from Jesus Christ, who he came to see was in fact the God of his uh, fathers. And that truth isn't subject to the relativism, the partiality of our knowledge. 
it's not comprehensive what we have from God in the sense of his comprehensive knowledge. His knowledge is, you borrow the language of, a, of a technical theology, his knowledge is archetypal and ours is not. Um, uh, but nonetheless, his truth is real truth that's revealed to us and uh, we can rely on it. But the question before the church in our generation is this. Do we still believe in the concept of revelation from God? A great deal hangs on this. Because if the gospel is just one way of many ways to be in a relationship with God, then there's no urgency about making it known. But if it is, in fact, the only way to be right with God and be in a relationship with God, then lives are in the balance on whether we uh, speak the gospel to others or not. Now we see here that Paul's authority is from God, and we see something of the gospel uh, in his story. And this whole letter shows us that the gospel of grace undergirds the whole Christian uh, life. Again and again he returns to it. And so we in our lives in our prayers, in our thoughts, and in our witness, and in every aspect of the life of the church need to continue to come back to the gospel again and again and again. And this is especially important uh, for you as a church in this season of transition. Because the life of every church that's in line with God's purposes must be centered on the gospel. The gospel must be the central value that shapes all other values. And often what actually happens is the church drifts uh, from that, if it had that at all at the beginning. Um, and very often what is elevated is some distinctive or something that the group shares in common. That becomes the central, actual, functional value in the life of the church. My second uh, point is this. Paul's story shows us that he was not a man pleaser. That the gospel frees us from people pleasing. You see, people uh, ple pleasers are driven to get their validation outside of themselves. Now Linda Tillman's another clinical psychologist and she put it this way. The people pleaser's personal feeling of security and self-confidence is based on getting the approval of others. Thus, at its core, people pleasers lack confidence. Paul is saying in verse 10 uh, that exactly the opposite. The gospel replaces that spirit with a different one, not needing human approval for what you do. The gospel, in other words, produces confident and fearless followers of Christ who are free to do what's right, whether it meets with the approval of other people or not. Whether it receives a, a smile, a, a, a warm affirmation from other people. Paul says he couldn't be a servant of Christ and a people pleaser at the same time. And neither can we. We cannot serve Christ and be people pleasers. And the Bible has a lot to say about people pleasing. Proverbs 29, 25. 
the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Fearing people is the opposite of fearing God. Now, the fear of people goes by all sorts of names today. can be people pressure, people pleasing, or even the word co-dependent. In the Bible, the fear of God doesn't simply mean we fear God, but rather it includes the idea that we are moved by awe and in wonder of His greatness. We're drawn to who He is as ultimately admirable and uh, worthy of the deepest response we're capable of giving to who He is. To fear people... To please people involves putting people in the very place that God belongs. In other words, we elevate people to the place God should be. We hold them in awe. We want, even need their approval, and we fear losing it. And this amounts to a kind of worship. You're saying you're giving people power over yourself, a power that only God should have. And it means you'll be devastated by the loss of people's smiles and affirmations as if you felt criticized and condemned by God himself. And this is why the advice that you can find about setting uh, boundaries and saying no and setting limits, well, whether you find it in the web or TV or in a magazine, uh, simply doesn't go deep enough because the fear of man, people-pleasing, is a religious Worship problem. It's a form of idolatry. The fear of man takes many forms. Saul uh, disobeys God because he was afraid of public opinion. Uh, Samson gives in to Delilah because he was afraid of losing her sexual attention. In Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, uh, Paul mentions uh, another form of this only doing your job to the degree that you get approval or reward from those who are over you. If you do that, if that's your internal motivation, then you'll never do your best. You'll never experience the full joy of serving others or doing what you can to the very best of your ability. People uh, pleasing is a a subject that uh, one of uh, my teachers at Westminster uh, wrote a book about. And he asked a whole series of diagnostic uh, questions to help you uh, recognize whether that's going on uh, in your uh, life. Here's just a couple of them. Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no even when wisdom dictates you should? Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, respect you? Uh, he writes, think carefully about this. Certainly God is pleased when there's good communication and mutual uh, honor and respect between spouses. But for many people, the desire for these things has its root in something uh, other than God's design uh, for his image bearers. You see, if you don't understand, actually, the nature of marital commitment and this uh, uh, concept of people-pleasing or the fear of man, what will happen is you will fear your spouse and your spouse will control you. They'll take the place of God in your life. Is self-esteem critical for you? 
Do you ever feel you might be exposed as an imposter? Many successful people do. And this sense of being exposed is an expression of their fear that people will view them as failures. And that controls them. It pushes them always to have to top the last thing they did. Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience love hunger? Do you easily get embarrassed? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Or are they making you crazy? If so, they're probably the controlling center of your life. Well, if we're all honest, if you really took some of that in, you realize we all struggle with this. None of us are completely free uh, of this. And just how does the gospel free us from people-pleasing? Well, the gospel announces to us that the full approval and acceptance of God is ours in Christ Jesus. We stand before God in Jesus, and so the words that the Father spoke to the Son, that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well-pleased, those words are ours. Those are ours. God is pleased with you. If you're in Christ, he's delighted in you. He is not disappointed with you. He takes delight in you. This is true even though we fail, we falter, and yes, we sin. He is delighted in you. This is how you stand before him. And nothing can change that. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is how God's love regards you. And it's so important uh, to get a hold of this in the deepest parts of our being. And it's so difficult for us to believe it. It's one of the reasons the Lord instituted this supper, just to help us to get this truth down deep in us. Uh, You see, it's kind of like... uh, the way a father uh, watches his beloved son play baseball on the team that he coaches. This illustration comes from another pastor. The father sits in the dugout and he loves his son fully and completely. And if his son forgets all the tips he had on uh, how uh, to hit the ball, well, his father's love for him is not going uh, to change. His approval of him does not uh, diminish one bit. The son is assured of the father's regard, regardless of his performance. But the son will long to hit that home run, not to earn his father's love. He's already uh, got that. But for his father, because he's already loved. If he doesn't know his father loves him, then his efforts will be for himself to win his father's approval, applause, and ultimately Love, But because the father, uh, because he knows his father already loves him, his efforts are for his father and to please him. And this is true for us as well. We do not obey God in order to achieve his approval or acceptance or to maintain that. No, our obedience, which is all the more radical because we know that we're fully accepted fully loved, and God's love cannot be moved off of us. 
That's uh, one of the greatest incentives and motivations in the Christian life for love. This is why duty falls so far short of being actually the great incentive. Uh, Duty may be how you get started, (laughs) but duty won't sustain you any more than your diet plan normally works out for you. It just won't sustain you. What sustains you is when your heart and mind are filled with the confidence that you are loved by the Father. That's why the gospel produces fearless and confident followers. Not arrogant ones who just plow over people, but they do what's right without concern for the approval and good opinion of other people. The third thing I want you to see from this is that Paul's story shows us that we too are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ. It's not just Paul who's called to make Christ known. All Christians are called to do this. We are all called to witness to Christ, uh, to point people to him. But we don't do it the same way uh, Paul uh, does by preaching. But in the sharing of our stories of how Christ has changed us so that other people will find Christ. And Paul's a good example of this in this letter. He shares his story in a personal way, being vulnerable about what Christ means to him. Why? Well, because Christianity isn't simply a philosophy, a set of ideas, or a moral code, a way to live your life. Christianity appeals to our whole beings, our whole lives, our whole minds, and our whole hearts. And if we leave out how we think and feel, we give people a false picture of Christianity. Christianity is more than deciding for Jesus, although it's not less than that, but it's more than that. And we need to witness to Jesus Christ in such a comprehensive uh, way as to show what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And now if we leave out our testimony, it's incomplete. Because Jesus appeals not just to our minds or our wills, uh, but to our affections. He reorients our heart's desires. He relates to us personally. Now different people tend to want to point people when they're talking about Christ uh, to different things. Some people are all hits. Intellect, reasoning, apologetics. I want you to understand that Jesus is the truth. And other people are all heart. They're all about feelings and and share the warmth of this personal encounter they've had in Christ. Uh, But if we leave out our personal testimonies, not only will we tend to fall to one side or the other, but they won't see the beauty of Christianity. If we want to help people find Jesus, we need to find ways for them to be exposed to him. Now, one of the very best ways to expose people uh, to Jesus is to have them read a gospel with you. To get someone to read a gospel with you, you're going to have to have a personal relationship with them. You simply can't get someone to do that uh, by knocking on a door or accosting them on the beach or (laughs) wherever you might uh, find them. You can't by strafing them with the gospel. Uh, (laughs) uh, Reach them. They're not going to read the gospel that way. Uh, But if you're building a relationship with someone and you can share your story, you need to learn how to share your story briefly. That's in under five minutes. 
maybe 90 seconds because people are very impatient today. And that's just the hook to begin to draw them in, to invite them to explore. Just why is it that a testimony, your story, is a gospel story? And it's because the truth of God's revelation in Christ is seen to be true as it's happened in your own life. It makes the gospel cogent because it makes sense out of life. The gospel's cogency is demonstrated because it actually makes a difference. It makes sense out of life. And it does this in at least three ways. The truth of the gospel is evidenced if it's emotionally true. It's emotionally satisfying. That God would come as a man and be rejected so that we can be accepted. Or that the king has died for us who were rebels to make us free. Or that evil will not have the last word. Those are emotionally satisfying things. And it's also our testimonies can exhibit the fruit. The joy and freedom that other people can see in you. Joy comes because of the gospel. Because we are accepted in ourselves with all our flaws and blemishes. And its truth is seen in the freedom that comes from putting our affections on God. So that we're freed from being controlled by other people or circumstances or our emotions. Now you don't have to have a dramatic story. And for you boys and girls who've grown up in a Christian home, uh, I hope you don't have a dramatic story at this point. I hope you'll never have a dramatic uh, story. But some of you actually do uh, here. And uh, one of the dangers of having a dramatic uh, story, as much as people sometimes really like it, is that you can focus the attention away from Christ to yourself. And so you need to be careful in how you talk about uh, the bad things that you did, the gory things, maybe the sexual uh, details. Uh, Instead, you need to point people uh, to Christ. It is the fear of man... It's the fear of losing relationship with people, the fear of experiencing uh, their disapproval, their criticism, even their rejection, that holds back so many people who actually believe the gospel is true and who actually care about the people around them. But that barrier of fear holds them back. There's no simple way to get over that barrier. I want to tell you, it's going to be there. It's okay. It's there. But if you're really in love with God, if you're freed from people pleasing, then you'll be confident and you will be able to step over that even though there's a risk. The really fundamental question before us from this uh, text is, will we wrestle with what it means to fear God and serve God? King Jesus because he's loved us or will we be enslaved needing the approval of other people people pleasers are idolaters and we have to put that to death but here's the good news Jesus has put every judgment against us he's taken and he's nailed it to his cross so there's no condemnation for us when we fall down And God's judgment is the only one that counts. Let's pray.
gracious uh, Father, we acknowledge that we're all drawn to seek the approval of people, and in different ways in our lives we manifest our fear of them. Right now in these moments, we turn toward you. We put to death that inclination to please people, and we put you back in your rightful place. Or we do this in the name of our strong Savior, Jesus Christ.